When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of Did You Read, the Times Opinion podcast. This week, I'm joined by our political editor, Francis Elliott, and regular columnists, Matthew Paris and Jenny Russell. If David Cameron really wants the European Commission to be an agent for change and a place where dynamic politicians go to complete a glittering career two of his arguments from the Juncker Jacques speech last week, then why on earth is he poised to send Andrew Lansley to Brussels? Neither my time nor my capacity for inquiry and deliberation are unlimited. So I have decided to have no opinion at all on what those involved should do about the ISIS crisis. We British are not involved. I have no opinion on the future of the US space programme either. <laughs> There's been outrage over the revelation that Facebook spent a week manipulating the news its users read to discover whether giving them sad or happy stories affected what they then posted online. The anger is justified. But we're all being manipulated all the time by what we read, see and choose to follow. And we all need to be far more conscious of that. Well, those are our topics uh, for this week. Let's begin with uh, yours, Francis Elliott. And Politics has been dominated over the last few uh, days, feels of even weeks at times, sure. by the whole Juncker business. Uh, David Cameron had Hungary at his side when he failed to stop Juncker becoming... 26-2, yes. Yeah, 26-2, quite a, quite a defeat. Even for this World Cup, that would be a scoreline, yeah. <laughs> but you're sort of looking forward now and thinking, if he's serious about EU reform, the next big test for him will be who he sends the British commissioner to Brussels it, and it, you're not convinced it should be the former health secretary I, I'm Lansley. not convinced it should be the former health secretary, indeed not it's the first reckoning we'll see of the post Juncker world and the signs that the Odoms are not good for, for Mr Cameron uh, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker has obviously had pledges of support from other countries they will collect on those uh, and the UK has, has let it be known it wants a, a big economic job. There are only three. Uh, and the signs are, you know, the UK won't get it. So the, the problem with David Cameron's... A lot, of, a lot of people thought that Britain would get a big consolation prize if Juncker was a... Why, you think, well, why on earth think would Juncker... I think, I think Juncker doesn't necessarily want to humiliate David Cameron. I mean, he needs. they both need to work with one another. And yet it needs to be kind of calibrated so that, you know, Britain isn't seen to be rewarded for an act of petulance and, you know, a, a damaging gamesmanship. 
And that's how it's seen across that, that's, Europe. I mean, that's is it how an act it, of petulance, is it? That, that seems to be the, the message coming back from others who are now engaged in, in one of the kind of furious horse trading sessions mm-hmm. you know, of the, of, of the European cycle. This really matters to countries. And who chooses the commission? It isn't Juncker. It's still the heads of government horse oh, trading. It's or? a very odd situation. I think, and this is where we get to the Lansley point, the system is that the names come first, not the post. Actually, it's the European president. It is Juncker who formally allocates, puts posts against names. I mean, I think you saw Cameron's phone call to Juncker, an acknowledgement that, that Britain needs to now get back in the game and start rebuilding alliances, PDQ, mm-hmm. in order to, to secure the best deal it can because the last thing that Cameron now needs is a humiliation on, on this mm. um, field because you know then we really are exposed for the for the lack of influence that um, the, 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 that we have so who, who's the kind of because Andrew Lansley is not inconsiderable he was the former health secretary he's personally close going back a long way with David well Cameron. this is you know I mean the, the objections to, to, to Andrew Lansley who's as you say a, a, a man of in some ways sort of blameless modernising tendencies are, are just that, are the, the, that he is a compromised candidate, that he is a, his candidature appears to have, its main force appears to be the fact that, that, that Cameron promised him the job when he was demoted from health secretary, mm-hmm. and that this is absolutely no way to appoint such a key role. And there was an interesting wrinkle in the um, in the debate yesterday when uh, that's uh, Monday, yeah, a Monday uh, where um, where Cameron appeared to concede that the next nomination will be uh, submitted to to the scrutiny of the UK Parliament, and Lansley would be deemed insufficiently Eurosceptic. Mm-hmm. I suspect that the person they really want but can't get is William Hague. They would love Hague, a big hitter, to do it. It would send exactly the right message of a of a serious position. Uh, but William Hague won't do it. Well, it gets knocked down very heavily every time it gets put up. Jenny, Jenny Russell, Andrew Lansley, the right man to represent Britain in Europe, or does it not matter? I think it just goes to show that David Cameron has never taken Europe seriously until this moment. The idea that you could take one of Britain's most notably failed politicians, a man who signally um, was unable either to make clear what his plans for the NHS were before the election or to take anybody of any significance with him once he brought them in. He failed completely on his NHS reform programme. He's a man who keeps his head down and his ideas to himself. And if you're trying to send somebody into Europe who's going to build bridges and make good relationships with other people and rebuild Britain's reputation and exert charm. He's capable of none of those things. It's an absolutely ludicrous idea. The, the, the rumour around Westminster, though, Matthew Paris, is that this job has been promised to Andrew Lansley. It's not unknown for politicians to break promises. Would you be happy with William Hague to be Britain's the, EU commissioner? The argument that would be put forward against William Hague and in favour of Andrew Lansley is that William Hague's great strengths are in public presentation. He is a wonderful orator. He's a warm and funny person, but that a commissioner is involved mostly in argy-bargy around the committee room table and in in intense fighting over clauses and commas and things like that. And the argument for Lansley is that 
the opposite one, that he's not a particularly good communicator, but that he really masters his brief and that to be a good European commissioner, that's what you must the do. The NHS bill, though, uh, Matthew, was a mess by all accounts. When he was responsible for drafting that, civil servants had to rewrite it and rewrite it to make it work. You, you imagine what he would do if he got his hands on some EU directives. Top-down reorganisation of the EU. <laughs> 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 no, exactly. That might be quite something to see, mightn't it? Yes, I was putting the argument that is made for Andrew Mansley, right. which, uh, Lansley, which is that he's a great technician. Yeah. I don't know if he is. Yeah. yeah, well, what I've heard is that he's very good at the technical detail but doesn't see the forest around him, and that would be the problem. He'd be focusing on some little clauses and not realising what was going past him. In but the in the context of a, of a referendum campaign of in-out, you would need somebody... The, 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 com- the UK's commissioner is, is bound to be, or could potentially become, a focus of interest. And no one thinks about Cathy Ashton. But if no, but if Hague were there, that would be the argument for Hague. Hague, Hague would be a, um, you know, could serve as a as a as a, as a key kind of fulcrum. Of, uh, if, if, if William Hague is convinced that we've got a good re- you know, renegotiation, <laughs> then you should be too. By the um, way, that is Francis. Yeah, sorry, that, we William Hague hasn't just walked into the, 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 the studio. <laughs> Amazingly. You know, uh, <laughs> Um, I think if I could have been a fly on the wall on any conversation recently, Jenny Russell, it would have been that call from David Cameron to Juncker after the uh, appointment. Must have been fantastic, must it? My heartfelt congratulations. You're just the man for the job. I wish you all the best. There's a bottle of cognac on his way. I mean, what did he say? Why well, can't we con- be told? The conversation I really would like to hear, though, even more though than that one, would be the conversation that's taking place between Angela Merkel and Downing Street, mm. though, at the moment, because that's the relationship that probably is really going to determine whether Britain gets anything serious from renegotiation. And we had a splash and I think on the front page of the FT if I'm allowed to mention that in this podcast that Germany and other European nations are going to give Britain some significant renegotiation if um, in return for this. Do, do we believe that? Well, I think we do because um, when I've talked to people who follow European politics much more closely than I do, uh, principally Peter Mandelson, about a fortnight ago, he said there's absolutely no question that most of the countries in the EU, seeing how Eurosceptic their own populations have become, are actually quite enthusiastic about the repatriation of powers. The key is that it mustn't just look as if it's going to Britain. They would all like to see mm. some more authority given back to domestic parliaments and domestic voters. The key thing here is how incredibly badly Britain handled it by standing up and throwing public tantrums basically and shouting at everybody and saying you've got to give it to me and and of course alienating everybody in the process it's um, you know how to win friends and influence people 101 mm. I, I think what the some online uh, subscribers to the Times like to call the liberal metropolitan elite is getting I this think they're wrong. thinking of you, Matthew. I think, <laughs> oh, I think he means me. <laughs> and you, Carry yes, on, uh, Matthew. He lives in Derbyshire. Most, most times, writers, probably. We, we British are not the petitioners in Europe. Europe is the petitioner. Europe, in two years' time, is going to have to be asking the British people to agree to stay in the European Union. And, they, and whatever they may say, it would be a devastating blow for Europe, for Britain to leave the EU. So it's now up to them to persuade us that they're serious about making the changes that we think are necessary. And and you in a column, I think you wrote a couple of Saturdays ago, Matthew, and I should say to any Times subscribers listening, if they go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, I will link to those uh, articles that we've been discussing and and a couple more. You wrote in that article, Matthew, that a cosmetic or slight renegotiation of the time that was enough to get Harold Wilson over the 
top and win the referendum in the mid-70s won't be enough this time because we are wise and we will look for more, in more fundamental change. The opponents of us staying in the European Union back in the 1970s were mostly crazies on the left and right. They, they aren't now. They're I, thought very a lot of, I thought you thought a lot of us still were a bit crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only some of you. Only some of you, Tim. <laughs> I think Matthew makes a very important point, and I think that's right. Mm. I think Europe doesn't want Britain to leave, but the point is that they see the same appetites in their populations as we have in ours um, to change something about this very remote relationship in which too many decisions are taken at too great a distance. Okay, well, we will have to move on. Um, I'm sure we'll be discussing Europe again and again and again um, over the next few months as it uh, remains centre stage. Now, Matthew Paris, we are all, as commentators, meant to have opinions on everything. Yes. You, and, and you have decided um, on the question, not just of the US-based programme, but more fundamentally uh, the question of what is happening in Syria and Iraq at the moment, that you are going to carry on looking after your llamas in Derbyshire and not focus too much on uh, cultivating my garden. Yes, <laughs> having I an may, opinion on this issue. Talking myself out of a, a, a job here, uh, it extends to the Middle East, it extends to Israel, Palestine. I have no opinion there any longer either. Did you once? Yes, I, I did. And what yes. happened to it? Uh, it, it got all muddled up with ending up disliking both sides and has uh, finally concluded in me realising that as the British have no influence at all, I don't have to have an, uh, an opinion. I think that empire is, is habit forming and the mental habits of being in charge of an empire linger on after the empire has gone. And I think they have with us for more than half a century. And so we still wake up with this irritable urge to decide what needs to be done in various parts of the world when we no longer have the power to do it. And I think just in the last year or two, perhaps starting with that parliamentary vote on Syria, we've begun to break that habit. And the habit of not thinking that you have to intervene is also uh, can be acquired. And I think we're beginning to acquire that habit. When I was in um, Costa Coffee Shop in Salisbury the other day, where I generally write my column, the lady always comes along, she knows what I do. And she says to me, what are you writing about this week? And uh, I told her I was writing about Iraq, as I was then planning to do. And um, she said, um, ah, well, what makes us think that when they've stopped beheading Iraqi soldiers, they won't come for us? Isn't that part of the argument as why we should be interested in what's going on in Iraq at the moment? Absolutely no reason why they want to come and behead us. They, they, we wouldn't let them in anyway. I no, don't know didn't. if this sustains or challenges your view, but I don't know if you saw on the news last night, Matthew, the um, ISIS propaganda video, which had the ends of the Sykes-Picot line as a... As a, sort of, and then a, and then a, a when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The shot of uh, a border post being blown up. I mean, you know, they are wiping away lines we drew in empire as we are. Yes, yes. Moving away. And, and does no part of you feel a twinge of guilt or responsibility for well, the Well, we've all made a terrible around? mess. We've all made a terrible mess of... Uh, of, uh, of empire and, and, and we've set up some in retrospect unsustainable frontiers and Roger Boys wrote a brilliant column about this ooh, about six months ago saying mm-hmm. that so many of these frontiers are going to have to change yeah. I don't think he had ISIS in mind but uh, <laughs> that may be the logical conclusion uh, I'll, try, I'll link to that on the blog as well it was a great piece Jenny Russell have you stopped having opinions on this region as well because we'll have to draft in some foreign policy columnists to the Times if you're all still <laughs> going to start <laughs> writing about this I've had a lot of sympathy with what Matthew says but where I have to take issue with him is the sentence we British are not involved I'm afraid afraid that we are with our history in the Middle East from Sykes-Picot on to um, our, 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 our place in all our interference in Middle East decisions like getting rid of Mossadegh in Iran and most lately deciding to go and destroy the state of Iraq on the basis that it might be harboring terrorists, which at the, that point it wasn't. We are intimately involved and I think there is part of us that has to recognise that if we break it, We do partly own it. And we did help to break Iraq. There's absolutely no question that we blew up that country and then behaved incredibly irresponsibly in the aftermath. We didn't make any plan for what happened afterwards. We destroyed its civil operating system and we led to the breakup of the state, which is happening now. But if you keep breaking things when you go into the shop, the moral is to get out of the shop, I think. No, it might well be, but I'm just to say, to say we're not involved, I think, mm. isn't accurate. To say we made an almighty mess and now we have to just say whatever we do, we make things worse. Perhaps we should just yes. withdraw and leave people to get on with it themselves and only apologise for the horror that we've left them with. That, that's a reasonable answer. But I think um, the Tony Blair line, which is that we, this is no longer our problem, I think that doesn't bear any examination. Francis, is, is, you're our uh, political editor in uh, Westminster, and I th- after the sort of the first Prime Minister's question time, after we saw, uh, we woke up to ISIS really mm. and saw them uh, take Mosul. Mm. Um, I think there was not one single question That's at Prime right. Minister's question time yeah. on this issue. Matthew might approve of that. I don't know, but. Do you sense that the British political establishment are essentially where Matthew wants them to be? They, want, they don't want to be involved in these big foreign policy questions anymore. I mean, the legacy of the Iraq war taints anybody with an interventionist agenda. And there is a, yeah, there's a sort of, not so much a conspiracy, but a collection of, a coalition of, of, of interest between, you know, hardcore non-interventionists like John Barron on the Tory right and the bulk of most MPs for whom, you know, like the rest of us, it's all very complicated. There are they equally unappealing choices everywhere. Mm. And it's no votes TV. There's nothing in it. You know, certainly Westminster feels very disengaged. I mean, occasionally it will kind of stumble across a conscience issue like the number of Syrian refugees. We're not letting many of those in, though. No, I think 50 There's not much of a conscience operating there. No, it's a pretty but massive they, UK but, humanitarian but, effort. Though. As long there, as they stay a long a, way away. There is a very big... UK humanitarian of it, but I mean, it's it also kind of it gets slightly elided with domestic terrorism. I think you know we really fail to address the concerns of people who you know 
British people, British Muslims, who feel very passionately that we're involved in um, Iraq uh, and I think and believe it, you know, are prepared to risk their lives delivering aid. You know, and they're not all terrorists. You know. Jenny Russell? I think our very belated understanding has been that the rest of the world is just as complex as our society and we understand it even less. I think we've had for 20 years or so a belief that somehow you could go and fix other societies simplistically and just make them better. If you just arm the good guys and um, condemn the bad ones, then good things will follow. Well, that hasn't worked in Iraq and it didn't work in Afghanistan and it hasn't worked I think in Libya. I was here. He said it worked in Sierra Leone. It worked in Cosmo. Yeah, that was his one, ti- his one tiny, minute little society where there were um, a few thousand people causing problems yes unfortunately he drew from that the conclusion that you could take immensely complex societies and somehow decree that things would get better if the British just came in on one side or the other final word to you on this uh, Matthew on, on the humanitarian aid budget do you support Britain being involved in in that way yes and yes. sometimes, perhaps, if you really are going to deliver humanitarian aid, though, you, you need humanitarian relief corridors which have to be protected yes, by I, British troops. You're open to that sort of involvement. The United Nations can sort that kind of thing. Uh, to, if people really won't let us in to, to, uh, to, to deliver help, then maybe we should give up. But where there's a crying need, I think human compassion answers your question. Yeah. So there's still a subject or two for your future columns that you could pontificate <laughs> on. <laughs> now, in terms of uh, the way we receive news, Jenny Russell, our third and final topic, you are worried that we are being manipulated by not just Facebook, by uh, the powers that be on the, in the online world generally. Tell us, tell oh, us what you're worried about. Oh, it's not just the online world. I mean, the newspapers that we read and the broadcast media that we watch. I think, I think what the Facebook story has illustrated... Tell, tell, tell those who well, may not know what the Facebook what, story what is. What Facebook for. did for a week in 2012 was that it um, changed the way that its users received messages from their friends, their newsfeed. So it either allowed more positive stories through stories about um, kittens and chocolate brownies and so on, or more negative ones, stories about people people's breakups or misery or mm. or news stories like well beheadings uh, um, that yeah. ISIS had carried out if, if those were happening now and what they found was that um, people's own posts and own moods as measured by Facebook then shifted significantly if you got a happy news feed you yourself posted more positive things and if you got a depressing one you sent out more negative messages so there was emotional contagion if you like now what was so disturbing about this was that, that of course people had absolutely no idea that they were being manipulated in this way. And Facebook, which is run by a community of um, geeks who thought this would be interesting information, clearly didn't foresee for a minute that anyone might be troubled <laughs> by this manipulation of their social world. And there's now a great deal of anger, and Facebook have apologised. But I think what this highlights for all of us is that actually we are influenced tremendously by what we're told. And we either choose that freely. We read the Times, say, because we consider we're on the centre-right, or we read The Guardian because we think we're in a left-wing bubble. And when we decide consciously that we're choosing those areas, we know that we're choosing one side or another. And yet we all believe that the view of the world that we are perceiving at that moment is somehow true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we all need to think about much more, the way in which we deliberately choose to manipulate our worlds in order to make us think that we are standing on some evidence base which gives us an unbiased view. And of course, nothing of the sort. Matthew Paris. What's your argument, uh, Jenny, that Facebook shouldn't have found this out or that this is very interesting what Facebook 
have found out on, on your first that Facebook shouldn't have found this out. Well, there's no good telling people they're part of a survey or that's going to interview their responses. I assume when I send an email that sooner or later someone will read it. I've always assumed my phone could be hacked. Uh, it's, it's just pie in the sky to think these days that people won't be watching us when there are ways that people can. Oh, I, I think everyone understands that we're being watched. I think to understand that we're being manipulated when we didn't think that's what Facebook was about, I think that's quite a different issue because Facebook... Was Facebook manipulating or was Facebook no, researching? Was face- no, well, it was manipulating because it was it was changing was the manip- messages that Matthew might be posting on his wall to me. I was only getting his negative ones about his llamas being sick. <laughs> exactly. I wasn't getting the happy kitten pictures. Um, you can conduct those experiments um, in a laboratory. You don't have to do them in real time on real people who have absolutely mm. no idea that they might be signing up for something. Yes, I'm thing. not sure what fundamental truth of the human nature this experiment mm. is supposed to have revealed. That you know, if you if you receive a lot of bad news, then you tend to um, be a bit gloomy. Well, I, I, well, I think <laughs> what's very interesting about it is, is I think we should think harder about um, the way that you create moods. Uh, there is, if you like, a social experiment ca- being carried on in London at the moment informally, which I think is having a very benign and beneficial effect on the city, which is the way that the Evening Standard is edited. When it was under its previous editor, Veronica Wadley, the one before the last, then it had a very negative diet of um, crime and gloom and disaster. It was run along the same editorial lines as the Daily Mail. And now it focuses much more on positive stories about London. In a way, it's creating a myth about London that it is a happy place to live and that people are essentially bonded to one another and that good things are going on within it. And I think that's having a remarkably good effect on the way that people perceive their neighbours and their city. We are No, that's exactly my point. I'm mm. saying that we are being manipulated. Right. And I'm saying that this, that because it has these so you're, benign You're basically effects, arguing that we should be aware We should of be more aware of this, but I think there's a public argument to be had about when and how journalism and anything else should either portray the world as it seems to be or as we would like it to be. Ah, but if you're my mother, for instance, it seems to be as you would like it to be. Uh, She sees the good things. uh, She manages to screen out the bad things. She passes on the good things. She never passes on the the bad things. Uh, This screening process is usually unconscious and, and we're all guilty of it. No, but some people go the other way around. How does she breed a cynical journalist, Matthew, your mother? <laughs> I'm reacting against my parents. <laughs> do, we, do we think this problem is better or worse than it was? Because certainly if I think of myself, you know, I used to, when I was growing up, I used to really only read one newspaper. And, but now, because of the internet, I sort of graze across an awful lot more diverse platforms. And I read The Guardian in a way that I never used to because I can read it online. I read the mail, I read the telegraph, I read American and Canadian. Does it change change your perspectives? Does it change your views? I think it probably has changed my views a little bit. But my main point, though, is I just think we are open now because of the internet if you you can if you want to with the internet live in a right-wing bubble as some people do in america only going to sort of very conservative tea party sites the same mm. for the democrats on the other side or actually you can open your mind and your reading to a huge much greater diversity of media sources and i think i'm i'm reading more broadly than i ever have done because of the internet mm. francis the, the the ability of people just to get the feed that they want is obviously mm. there. I mean, Twitter's the classic example. You know, you can so, but newspapers persist because because of the serendipity principle. You read things that you might not read, 
And within newspapers, there's always been a sense of, of the need for a mix. And as part of that mix, actually, weirdly, people, you know, I've always thought that there is a need for the depressing part of the mix. And mm-hmm. um, people seem to have a, 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 an appetite for negativity, actually. And that's, you know, a, and a key part of a successful newspaper mix will always have a couple of stories which are quite gloomy, actually. Yeah. And I, I guess Jenny's right. I mean, is there anything more cynical or worrying about how a news editor decides the run of a news pages than Facebook... You know, slightly altering the priorities. You know, so Matthew Paris. In a paper. Go on, Sorry, Matthew. Matthew. I was going to try to come in. A friend of mine got a job as an assistant editor on the diary column of a, a well-known middle market uh, tabloid, Name. and uh, was uh, <laughs> was told by his editor the the rule uh, on our column is that every article that we run has to make somebody a little bit angrier or a little bit more frightened than they were before they read it. That's a horrible thought, yes. with which I'm afraid we must end uh, this week's um, podcast. But Matthew, Francis, Jenny, thank you very much. Thank you to Dave Maguire, producer, for putting this all together. And we will be uh, back next week and uh, with a different cast of uh, podcasters. And please, if you are a Times subscriber, do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, where you can listen to this podcast, subscribe to it via iTunes, and leave a comment on anything you have heard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>